Welcome to Christian Renewal Church Sunday Sermon. Thanks for tuning in to our series, Resolve, based out of our study on the book of Daniel. For more information about this sermon and other resources, please visit ChristianRenewalHHI.org. We're in Daniel chapter 1. We're going to start in verse 8 this morning. Let's pray over the word. Lord, we ask that you would speak to us. We ask that you would mold us. We ask that you would convict us. We come to your holy and inspired word this morning. We confess that we believe this thing to be inerrant. We ask that the truth that you've given us by the breath of your spirit would penetrate our hearts this morning. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Somebody say amen. Amen. A life totally committed to God has nothing to fear, nothing to lose, and nothing to regret. A life totally committed to God has nothing to fear, nothing to lose, and nothing to regret. These are the words of an Indian social reformer named Pandita Ramabai. She was a scholar, fluent in something like eight languages, was frustrated with the cultural practices, in particular the degradation of women. It wasn't common for women to be educated, um, but her father thought it was um, crucial. He, he teaches her mother Sanskrit, um, and her mother teaches her Sanskrit. This is a picture of her here. Um, she becomes a Sanskrit scholar. Hindu leaders are mind blown at the amount of text that she has committed to memory. They give her the name Pandita, which isn't her birth given name, but it, the name essentially means scholar or master. Again, she's frustrated because women are not educated in her culture. She's frustrated because women don't receive proper health care. She's frustrated because child marriages are a regular thing. I think she was 19 when her father and mother both died in a famine. I think two years later, her only brother died. She gets married in her early 20s. Her husband dies after three years of marriage. But yet she shows herself to be an absolutely brilliant young widow. And burdened by the injustice of her society that other young women didn't have opportunity. She was frustrated with the caste system. You remember how class systems work there. But she met some Christians in Calcutta. And they were impressed with her brilliance. And they encouraged her to go to England and study. And so she did. She went to England to study. And while she was in England, she saw Christians caring for the poor and for the widow. And her heart was absolutely enthralled that there were religious people who cared for women, cared for the orphan and the widow. And she finds in Christianity liberation, freedom, salvation for man and woman alike. She finds in the Christian faith a sense of equality that God created man and woman in his image. She finds a sense of justice, a sense of hope for something better. She begins to read the scripture and she says this, recalling her salvation moment. She says, I had never, she said uh, she was reading John chapter 4. You remember John chapter 4 is Jesus' interaction with a Samaritan woman um, at the well. 
She's reading John 4 and she says this, I had never read or heard anything like this. I realize after reading the fourth chapter of St. John's Gospel that Christ was truly the divine Savior he claimed to be. And no one but him could transform and uplift the downtrodden women of India. Thus my heart was drawn to the religion of Christ. She goes on to establish safe places for widows, places for women to receive medical care. Not only women, but orphans, the mentally handicapped She caught the Queen of England, Queen Victoria's attention, and Queen Victoria starts to open hospitals in India for women. She goes on to to found what she calls Mukti Mission. Mukti is a word in Hindu that describes, it's, the word is used in other contexts as well. The word essentially means freedom or liberation. And in Hindu, and specifically her, the, 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 religion that she grew up in, um, Mukti describes the liberation or freedom from the process of reincarnation. But the problem was women couldn't experience this liberation. So she, after she becomes a Christian, founds a, a house for women and she calls it Mukti Mission, making the point that here women can have salvation. That in this house you can know Jesus and you can be really be born again and you can really experience liberty. Mukti Mission is still uh, around today. I think they have like 20, something like 20 locations. Take care of orphans, mentally and physically challenged, single mothers, outcast. But her Christian faith became so foundational to who she was. One of, actually, she, I told you that she spoke something like seven or eight languages, but she was fluent in Greek and Hebrew, and she translated the entire scriptures, Hebrew, Old Testament, and the Greek, New Testament, into her native tongue. Absolutely brilliant. She does all of this work only to be rejected by her society for being a Christian. She spends her life trying to think of how much I want to talk about. If you remember the story of George Mueller, George Mueller was a, a, a Christian man who started these um, orphanages um, to take care of orphans, and he did it off of faith. And so what George Mueller did was he opened these orphanages, but he didn't tell anybody how much money he needed. He just did it off of faith, and the point was that God would take care of them. And Pandita was one day thinking about George Mueller in prayer, thinking about these orphanages that he had started. And Pandita says to herself, why has no one started this in India? And she says that she hears the Holy Spirit say, why don't you start this in India? And so she opens all of these houses. She spends all of her life's work trying to liberate the downtrodden only to be rejected for her faith. They called her anglicized. They, many parents would remove their kids from her school once they realized that she was a Christian. They made her a social outcast. They totally rejected her, but she doesn't quit. They call her fanatic. And she proves herself to be a fanatic. And we find her with resolve. She refused to allow opposition to slow her. Again, she says that in her commitment to God, she has nothing to lose and nothing to fear and nothing to regret. And in 1905, she makes a call for prayer. And, and history says that 550 women met twice a day for prayer. 
And they prayed for, history says, 29,000 people daily. 29,000 people they interceded for God to reach, for God to move upon. Young women gave up their studies um, to go be missionaries and to preach the gospel to their neighboring villages. And it produced what history calls the Mukti Revival. And now I have a couple quotes. Well, I have a little bit from her here. Um, one, one person recalling the account said this. One evening while uh, Ramabai was expounding John 8 in her usual quiet way, the Holy Spirit descended with power and all the girls began to pray aloud so that she had to cease talking. Little children, middle-sized girls, young women, they wept and bitterly confessed their sins. Some saw visions and experienced the power of God and things too deep to be described. Two little girls had a spirit of prayer poured on them in such a way that they continued to pray for hours. And they were transformed with heavenly light shining in their face. She says in 1907, I have seen not only the most important, or the most ignorant of our people coming under the power of revival, but the most refined and very highly educated, even English men and women who have given their lives for God's service in this country coming under the power of God so that they lose control of their bodies. They're shaking like reeds, stammering words in various unknown tongues as the Spirit teaches them to speak and gradually get to a place where they have a new unbroken communion with God. Historians say she was a rare blend of social concern, compassion, scholarship, administrative skills, and she stands as a principal modern Pentecostal pioneer. She meets a season of resistance. They try to reject her for her Christian faith, and in response, she digs her teeth in, makes a call to prayer. 550 women show up to pray every day, and they experience an outpouring of God's presence and power. She meets trial. She meets hardship with resolve, and God resolves to pour out his presence and power in her midst. And that's where we find Daniel, meeting trial. Again, if you missed last week, we talked about the fact that Daniel was maybe 15 years old when he's removed from Judah. He's taken from his homeland in chains and brought to Babylon. And in Babylon, he is forced to study false religions. In Babylon, he is possibly even castrated, possibly made a eunuch, the scripture says. And in Babylon, he loses all sense of his spiritual and religious identity yet the scriptures say that he does not just roll over and play dead but rather he resolves not to defile himself and when everyone says your god is dead or your god is asleep or your god must have forgotten you daniel in his gut says no i resolve not to defile myself before the lord and as daniel resolves not to just lay down god meets daniel's life with his presence and with his power So last week we talked about Daniel's resolve. This week we're going to talk about God's resolve. God's resolve to be faithful. God's resolve to show himself powerful. God's resolve to not let a sacrifice sit on the altar without pouring the fire of his spirit on it. So here's our text. Let's read it together. Daniel chapter 1 verse 8. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. And therefore he asked the chief of eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. 
And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of eunuchs. And the chief of eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my Lord, the king who assigns you your food and your drink. For why should he see that you are in worse condition than the youths who are of your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king. Daniel says to the steward whom the chief of eunuchs has assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Test your servants for ten days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you. And deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in this matter and tested them for ten days. At the end of ten days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youth who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables. Commentators mentioned that the steward here was probably trading food with them, taking the king's food and giving them his fruit and vegetables. The steward was making out. And as for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill and all literature and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding and all visions and dreams. And at the end of the time, when the king commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. The king spoke with them, and among all of them, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore, they stood before the king, and in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all his kingdom. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. Last year, we discussed last year. Last year, it was last year. Last year, Yeah, we did last year. Last week, we discussed Daniel's resolve to honor God in his captivity and in his bondage. And this week, we'll see that God resolved to show himself faithful to Daniel in his captivity and in his bondage. And God resolves to cause his purposes to come to pass in Daniel's life. God's resolved to use Daniel on a national platform, even in the midst of captivity. Daniel finds himself in chains in a foreign nation. Everything is going wrong, yet God is going to use him on a national platform. God is going to cause every purpose for Daniel's life to come to pass. I feel the need to give a little disclaimer here. Um, There's a hermeneutical principle. Hermeneutics is the art of interpreting, interpreting scripture that says that when you're studying a narrative, um, You try to find the principles of the narrative. You try to understand the heart of God in the narrative. But you don't assume that everything that happens in the narrative is going to happen to you. And so I'm not telling you that if you do the Daniel fast this week, you're going to get fat. Because Daniel, Daniel fasted and he got fat. I'm not telling you that if that was the case, I wouldn't be doing the Daniel fast this week. Because your boy is already a little fat. I'm hoping to shed something this week. Smith Wigglesworth was a super interesting evangelist in the late 1800s. He died in the 1940s. Um, there's all these crazy stories of him praying for sick people, and he would do weird stuff. He would, um, there are these testimonies, a ton of them, where someone has a tumor in their stomach, and Smith Wigglesworth would just punch them in their stomach, and the tumor would go away. And the problem is, is that all of a sudden, every person who believed in healing thought they had to punch somebody. I have a friend who was punched in the stomach by a really well-known evangelist, punched him right in the gut, and he was telling me the story. And I said, well, what happened? He said, nothing happened, and it hurt. (laughs) 
No, God doesn't promise you that he's going to use you in the exact same way that he used Elijah. He doesn't promise to bless you in the exact same way that he blessed Abraham. Or even promote you in the way in which he promoted David. He doesn't promise that. But he does resolve, commit, covenant himself to be faithful to you in the same way in which he showed himself faithful to Abraham. Faithful to Elijah. Faithful to David. And he does promise, resolve, covenant towards you that he will cause his purposes to come to pass in your life. Now his purposes might be different than your purposes. But finding yourself in the dead middle of God's will is the most beautiful, fulfilling, significant place that you could be. So first, Daniel resolves that he will not defile himself. He resolves to live holy in the midst of a a culture that has total disregard for the God of Israel. And God makes a way for him to do so. Daniel has a passionate conviction that he should honor God by not eating the unclean food from the king's table. Most likely the food was sacrificed to idols as well because because. Daniel's allowed to drink wine. The, there's, there's no um, Old Testament, there's no law against having wine um, unless you're a Nazarite. And Daniel's not a Nazarite. He's allowed to have wine from the king's table, but he rejects it. And almost all scholars agree it's because in Babylon, we know from history that almost all food was offered to idols. And so the, the wine and the food was not only unclean. We know from history also that, that, that Babylonians like to eat horse They ate a lot of pork. Um, Those things obviously are unclean in the Mosaic Covenant. But Daniel also rejects the wine because the food is offered to idols. He resolves in his heart not to participate in dishonoring the law of God and not to participate in pagan worship. Here's the problem the king told him that he had to. Here's the problem that the commission of the king is that he is to eat the food of the king's table. So Daniel's in a dilemma. In one sense, he says, I want to honor God. But in another sense, the chief of eunuchs says, if we don't do this, the king's going to have my head. So Daniel, this 15, maybe 16-year-old, goes to negotiate with the chief of eunuchs. And I want you to think for a minute about the anxiety that he must have felt to walk into the room with the chief of eunuchs and to begin to negotiate with him about what he's going to eat, to begin to negotiate with his leaders about possibly disregarding the command of the king. And he's got nothing to offer. You guys know when you negotiate, you got to have some bargaining power, man. He ain't got no bargaining power. He's 15 years old. And all he wants to do is disregard the command. He got nothing to offer. But what he does have, the scripture says that God gave him favor and God gave the eunuch compassion for him. Remember, we talked last week in Daniel 1, it says that God gave Israel over to Nebuchadnezzar. And now that same sovereign God gives Daniel favor and divine compassion in the eyes of the rulers. I want you just to notice, I just think it's worth mentioning that Daniel's resolve didn't flesh out in arrogance. He doesn't come barging in and saying, no, I'm going to do what I want to do and God's going to back me up. No, his resolve comes in humility and kindness because the kingdom of heaven always resists arrogance. And I want you also to notice that Daniel's resolve 
actually had some feet to it. It's real easy to come into worship and hear Micah hit that high note and then decide that you're going to quit doing what you're doing and then walk out of the room and live how you're going to live. But biblical resolve goes home, puts some blocks on the cell phone, has a picks up the phone, calls the cable company, tells them to turn off the channels that are funneling into your homes, stuff that dishonors God. Biblical resolve, it steps out of the building and lives godly conviction. No, Daniel's resolve is not just an emotional moment, but he steps outside and lives his faith. His faith is marked on the bottom of his shoes. What kind of resolve do you have? What kind of resolve do you have to really love God? Don't come in here and get emotional and get hyped up and make these big claims about how you're going to live to really honor the gospel of Jesus and then walk out and live like hell. Don't pray, God, let your kingdom come and let your will be done and then go advance darkness. That's conflicting and contradictory. Daniel resolves and then he takes action on his resolve. And even when kings say to Daniel, you cannot do this, God makes a way. I don't know about you, but there ain't nobody got a gun to my head making me sin. Daniel's got a gun to his head and says, you're going to sin. And God still makes a way for him out. If you find yourself in sin this morning, I'm telling you, there's a way out of the mess that you're in. If you find yourself in bondage, I'm telling you, God will open a door for you to step into freedom. I'm telling you, you get some conviction to really love and honor Jesus. And watch how God busts open the gates of heaven and makes a way for you. First Corinthians 10:13 says this, "No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will provide the way of escape that you may be, you may be able to endure. Watch Daniel in this moment of temptation. Remember we talked last week. Why didn't he just lean back and have a little too much of the king's wine? But no, he decides he's going to live holy and God makes a way. Too often we get caught up and overwhelmed by the temptation that we experience. You need to let your eyes learn to look for the way of escape. God's not allowed you to be cornered. God will make a way. He'll move heaven and hell to make a way for you to live holy. If you'll resolve it. You guys hear what I'm saying at all this morning? The next thing is this. That God met their needs. It's assumed that the program that Daniel finds himself in. This school that he finds himself in. Is filled with other young men who have been taken from their homeland. Again. Um. Nebuchadnezzar conquers Egypt just months before he conquers Judah. So, again, there's probably Egyptian young guys in there. They're all in this program together. They all eat the food of the king's table. They're all educated by the wise men of Nebuchadnezzar. And they all thrive. They're all physically sustained by food that's been sacrificed to idols, to false gods. The provision of a foreign conqueror. But Daniel says to the chief of eunuchs, you let us just have fruit and vegetables and God will sustain us. Because Daniel understood that it's not the food on the king's table that 
provides nourishment to his bones. It's the hand of God that every breath he takes is at the will of God. And even if he had nothing to eat, God could sustain him if it was God's will. So Daniel says, I don't need the king's food to flourish. God is my provision. He misses out on the pleasure of experiencing the the king's food. Night after night, they go back to their room and spend their nights with mundane food, not quenching the fullness of their appetite. But they would rather be alone with bland food and have the presence of God than in the midst of many young men feasting and and dishonor him. They would much rather spend their nights in the quiet, alone, with bland food and have the presence of God than in the midst of a party eating whatever, literally whatever they would like and forsake him. You remember that old hymn, I'd rather have Jesus than silver or gold. I'd rather be his than have riches untold. I'd rather have Jesus than houses or land. I'd rather be led by his nail-pierced hand. I'd rather have Jesus than men's applause. I'd rather be faithful to his dear cause. I'd rather have Jesus than worldwide fame. I'd rather be true to his holy name. He's fairer than lilies of rarest bloom. He's sweeter than honey from out of the comb. He's all that my hungering spirit needs. I'd rather have Jesus and let him lead. They don't eat the meat. They don't drink the wine. God makes them fat anyway. They don't have the the nutritional value, the caloric value. I got too much caloric value, if you know what I'm saying. They ain't got the caloric value that the rest of these young men have. Yet the scripture says when they stand before the chief of eunuchs, they are fatter than the rest. This morning, I just want to remind you that it's not your job that's your provision. It's not your skills, not your commitment, or even your work ethic that sustains you. At the end of the day, God, Yahweh, the King of Israel, Jesus, He is your daily bread. Daniel says, I don't even need food, and God will sustain me if He will, if He wills to do so. Here Jesus said, man does not live on bread alone, but every word that comes from the mouth of God. So you find yourself employed by a company who begins to handle themselves in ways that are less than integratable. You find yourself in a financial situation where you have to choose to benefit or to walk away. You find yourself in a relationship that's beneficial to you socially. That dishonors God. And you've got to choose whether or not to walk away. And I'm telling you this morning that your job is not your daily bread. If you find yourself in sin, God will make a way out. And you may have less, but God will still make you fat. I can have less money in the account and still be fatter and still be better taken care of.
Hear Jesus' words in Matthew 6, 33. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. The context is the, don't worry about what you're going to eat or drink. Don't worry about what you're going to wear. You seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and everything else will be taken care of. And here Daniel says, I ain't worried about what I'm going to eat. God will provide. God's my provision. I'm worried about my covenantial, intimate relationship with him. And I'm not willing to allow your food to cause me to miss out on what God wants to do in and through me. He tells us in the Sermon on the Mount, when you pray, don't heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do. For they think they'll be heard for their many words. Don't be like them. For your father knows what you need before you even ask him. So my points are simply this. That God made a way for them to live holy. God provided for them even though they lacked. And then the last point is just this. That God then shows off. Their resolve to honor God created a platform in which God could show out. They made a statement with their lives. With the way that they lived, they screamed, we belong to the God of Israel. The way that they spoke, they screamed, we belong to the God of Israel. So when God got ready to bless them, there was no doubt why they were being blessed. When Daniel interprets dreams and even tells the king what the dream was, when all of the magicians and all of the enchanters of their lands are dumbfounded, everybody knows why Daniel has an interpretation to that dream. Daniel's not serving Baal. Do you hear what I'm saying? It's it's very, very clear who Daniel's God is. And when he makes it very, very clear who his God is, God makes it very, very clear that he is God. And when God blesses your marriage or God blesses your business, when you choose to live a resolved life passionately in relationship with Jesus, when God blesses you, ain't nobody asking you what Dr. Phil book you read. When you live a life faithfully committed to God and God begins to show up and show out on your life, nobody's looking around to see what little skills you have. It's very clear that you are being blessed because you belong to the one who blesses. Scripture says that God gave them wisdom, insight, learning, skill. The scripture says that Daniel had the ability to interpret visions and dreams. We know from history that this was a particular and special gift in Babylon. We know from history that they highly valued the interpretation of dreams. So God not only gifts Daniel, but he gifts him with the particular gift, with the right gift for the moment. And we'll finish with this. At the end of their training, the king says that he, it says that the king questions them and tests them on their wisdom and knowledge. And he finds them ten times better than all of the magicians and all of the enchanters in the land. Not only does he find them ten times better than all of the young boys in the program with him. No, he says, I find them ten times better than all of the magicians and all of the enchanters of the land. You honor God. I'm telling you to put your resolve in practice. Walk in intimate fellowship with him. I'm not telling you that God's going to reduplicate the story. I'm not propagating any kind of formula. I'm not saying that God's going to make you ten times more successful. I ain't a prosperity gospel preacher. If you ain't figured that out yet, it ain't me. 
But I am saying that he knit you together in your mother's womb. That he designed you with purpose. I am saying that Ephesians 2 says that you were saved for good works. That you are Christ's workmanship saved for good works which Christ has prepared for you beforehand. And I am saying that there's nothing better, nothing sweeter than knowing you're right in the middle of God's will. I'm not saying go on a Daniel fast and you're going to be smarter than everybody else. I got bad news for some of you. God just made you dumb. Okay? But I am saying you resolve and watch God be faithful. I am saying you resolve and watch the resolve of God absolutely ravage through your life. Watch God tell your story, punctuate your story. Watch God show up and show off in his timing. And in conclusion, I just want to say this. And they, they said to God, we know that, or they say to Daniel when he's brought to Babylon, they say, your God's dead and your God's asleep. Your God doesn't exist. If your God is the sovereign God of the universe, why is it then that you are led out of Judah in chains and in shackles? And they say to Daniel, where is your God now? And I think Daniel now looks back at them and says, please tell me, why is it that the Jewish boys are ten times better than all of you? Watch God show up and show out. Watch God be faithful, even in hardship. Watch God resolve to bless you, to walk with you, to pour his spirit out on your life, even in trial, even in famine, even in captivity, even in darkness. God says, I will be faithful. This is a promise of God. That he will work all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purposes. He covenants to you that if you resolve to love him, he will work all things together for your good. He will cause his purposes to come to pass in your life. And so here we've seen in Daniel chapter 1, Daniel resolve in the midst of chaos and darkness and absolute turmoil. Daniel say, I will honor God. I belong to Yahweh. There's no other God for me. I belong to this one God of Israel. And although it looks like a mess today, I believe that he's still faithful. And then in response, in the latter half of the chapter, we see God saying to Daniel, now I will show myself faithful. I have resolved to bless you in the midst of this darkness. I have resolved to use you even when you feel like there's no possible way you could be used. Resolve. God calls himself the faithful bridegroom. He's invited you into intimate fellowship with him. And that's the way relationship works, man. I, I don't, I have to say, I don't like the formula-driven religion which says that if I honor God, he has to give me money or he has to give me a new car. I don't like that at all. That's like a marriage where you say, I wash the dishes, so you're going to have to do whatever it is you need the other person to do. That, that's, not, that's not relationship. That's not intimacy. It also forgets the fact that you're in relationship with God and you don't tell him what he's going to do. He going to do what he going to do. He might have made you dumb for a reason. You know what I'm saying? He hasn't asked you to, re- to live a cold, religious, stale life. That's not what I'm propagating at all. He's invited you to love him and allow him to really love you. Not formula, but relationship. And that's what we see happening in Daniel's life. Everything falling to pieces. And him saying, no, I have a relationship with this God. And when, I, when I'm faithful to this God, this God's 
faithful man. It can look to you like this is darkness, but no, even the darkness is light to him. He doesn't always show up when I want him to show up, but he always shows up. I think Daniel thought, he contemplated, and he decided that God calls himself the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob because he's the God of the generations. And he worked for Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and that God would work for him. He puts his resolve into motion, and God puts his resolve into motion. God's resolve to love his children. His resolve to be your faithful shepherd. His resolve to cause all things to work together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purposes. God's got resolve too. Put yourself in the middle of it. God's God's got resolve too. God's got a commitment. God's got a covenant. God's got purpose and conviction in his heart too. Put yourself in the middle of it. Thank you for listening to this Sunday sermon. Subscribe to our podcast for new messages weekly. Visit ChristianRenewalHHI.org for more resources. We hope you have a blessed week.